Welcome to North Beats from North Beach. I'm your host, Corey Luna, chatting with the people behind electronic music. If you enjoy North Beats, please contribute at patreon.com forward slash North Beats to help me fund this intriguing podcast. In the Bay Area, we have several live shows for you to attend. The first Sunday of each month is Resident Frequencies in Oakland, run by Kevin Friedrichsen. Second Tuesday is Resident in San Francisco, run by Frank Martin, Emery Peterman, and Jason Warden. The third Wednesday is Peaked, run by Rich Hogbend and myself. And a new open mic for electronic musicians is starting February 27th in Fairfax, Marin County, called Digital Grass, hosted at 19 Broadway and organized by me. But this will be every fourth Thursday, so please come out. Admission is free. Buy a drink and support your local scene. If you have any questions, you may contact me on Instagram at CoreyZLuna or email me at CoreyLuna at Yahoo.com. In September 2019, I interviewed my friend Lachlan Fletcher, who you may remember performed at peak number four with Mark Letzner. We get into his theories on music, and then we went to his practice space where we jammed for a little while. He played a surge modular, and I played on Eurorack with Landscape FM's All Flesh Touch Plates. Last week at Peaked 11, Mark Letzner told me his mother listened to his North Beats podcast interview and loved it. So I'm happy to announce that North Beats is mother-approved. Thanks, Mark's mom. Now, please enjoy Lachlan Fletcher. <laughs> for doing my podcast North Beats. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So tell me a little bit of, of background on how you got into electronic music. Um, in high school, I had friends who had uh, very, the types of older sim like about high school students things are, think are really cool. And <laughs> they gave us a really low quality mp3 copies of albums from like like a lot of warp records right so we like boards of canada was really big for for me and my friends and so yeah. it was apex twin and you know future sound of london and all of this kind of like 90s british edm kind of stuff mm -hmm. um very much headphone music and uh at the time i was in bands i played guitar and everything and and uh I played a lot of um like stoner metal basically was was kind of an intense area of interest uh, <laughs> uh, with a burgeoning interest in shoegaze. I think those two are more related than than maybe is immediately apparent all the time. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I mean that's really how I got into it. I, I got a cracked ver a version of Reason Four when it came out <laughs> and uh, kind of learned synthesis through playing with Reason Four, which is. Reason is an amazing teaching tool about synthesis and electronic music generally. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I went to school for, uh, uh, in, in Montreal, I went to school for uh, uh, communication studies, which, which in, in my department and in many departments in Canada is a little bit different than it is in the U.S. It's, it's uh, kind of 50% uh, 
cultural studies and media studies and 50 percent uh, uh, practice of that theory and so what that looks like is there's a film school and you learn about kind of how a, a film manifests the zeitgeist or is used culturally or received culturally and then you go make film that kind of experiments with those ideas so you can do film you can do video you can do digital arts and i did sound at the same time i studied electroacoustic music at at the same school they had an electroacoustic program so that is kind of what deepened my interest in kind of academic and experimental electronic music um and uh, yeah i mean so that was that was over 10 years ago and it's been kind of my area of focus since in different ways. I've kind of taken a lot of different uh, uh, approaches to it. I've been in bands during that time. I've only played by myself for long stretches of time. I, I've played different instruments, but uh, really over the last five years is, is when I kind of, I, I learned the modular at school. They had a, one of the years that I was there, they bought a four, like a 484U9 or 84, uh, the 84HP9U dope for cases. So wow. they had this like big dope for setup that basically had all the kind of like basics from Surge and early Moog systems and uh, a little bit of Buchla stuff, like those modules. This was like 2008, 2009. So the lineup was smaller, like Doper's lineup was smaller. Well, sure. Than it is now. Um, so I kind of learned modular synthesis then, and reason has something to do with it. But I, eventually, I was able to uh, start buying my own system again after years of playing with uh, uh, different things in order to kind of create the music I wanted to create. But knowing the whole time that modular synthesis was the the most effective way to get at the thing that I wanted to explore in music. Uh, so the, the past five years, I've been focused on modular synthesis and, and kind of have been deeply immersed in that world for better or for worse. <laughs> Very good. So it sounds like from school you were able to expand a little bit more on what what you understood of what synthesizers are and how did you get into building the surge? Um so I the uh the first time I walked into there's a, there's a great store in Toronto called uh, uh, Moog Music. It's important. It is Moog. It's not Moog. It's very important for legal reasons that we all understand that it's Moog, not Moog, the shop in, in Toronto. <laughs> they're not affiliated. <laughs> they, have, they have had issues in the past. Uh, but they're an amazing... Uh, they're, I, think they're, I think everything is fine now. <laughs> uh, but but they're, they're fantastic. And uh, I walked in and I was like, you know, I just really want to explore texture and timbre. I don't really want to make... Uh, uh, beat-driven music or anything particularly melodic. Um, I just know that these are like very powerful tools for doing this, and I've done this in the past. So give me like an interesting oscillator and an interesting filter. And uh, the the person who was working there um, guided me away from that idea, and instead I walked out with a DPO and a maths, which you know he he kind of gave me a little bit of the history that we all know about uh, West Coast synthesis, which I had never. You know, in school, they didn't really teach that part of it. They were more focused That's on... That's really don't. Well, I, it's kind of interesting because they taught a lot of other parts of the history of electronic music, but they didn't teach that part, mm-hmm. yet they did have this system there. <laughs> That's, it was a funny choice. I think it just might have been that they hadn't updated their curriculum or something. But, uh, uh, I, you know, I certainly didn't know. Or maybe I wasn't paying attention. Also, incredibly likely. Uh, uh, but I didn't know, and, and, and so this kind of blew my world on having to go back and learn maths, you know, and, and figure out in DPO, like, 
what even trying to wrap my mind around like musical applications for cross modulation <laughs> for example was like a really good challenge um and uh, uh i think i've always kind of been invested in the idea of uh so i'll come back to that point in a second uh, yeah. but uh, i've always kind of been invested in the idea of um creating uh systems like inter, uh, instruments that are systems mm -hmm. that are kind of continuous so i did a lot of um like really loud uh textural guitar looping in high school like this was post getting super into boards of canada if, if that makes sense i'm sure you can oh, kind of imagine it. broadly what this sounds like uh, and then in, and then in, in university i was in a band for a while where i played uh this is very important. This band, which still exists today, it's called Aim Low. They're almost 10 years old. Uh, they're in Montreal and they are fantastic. Um, but uh, uh, when we started that band, it w the premise was uh, uh, kind of a parody. We all love this kind of music. It was basically um, drone shoegaze without a drummer. Um, very like, what if Stars of the Lid was turned up to 11? Um, and I played a I played a bass guitar with a uh, violin bow through like a series of between five and ten delays and reverbs feeding into each other, uh, just to kind of like do this very you know not 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 saying this was an original idea, but to kind of create this effect of um, the very cigarous effect of, of just kind of like evolving sound, and you put input into the system, but then you kind of perform the system as much as you perform mm -hmm. the bass guitar in this in this case itself. Yeah, you're designing this arc of, yeah. of, of waves of different delays and modulation that you're playing with. Exactly. So, so I, w you know, I was interested in that, and then I, I got really into kind of uh, exploring destructive digital processing in ways that were like very interconnected. Um, you know, changing the resolution of diff like different audio files actually messing with the audio files themselves, not applying effects to them and seeing what would happen and creating textural music that way. And then after, after school, I spent a lot of time writing piano music, uh, but that would, that was also often through delay networks or really highly networks of resonant filters that would kind of create a harmony with the piano. Um, so the, the kind of like idea of a con continuous system that provides, that responds to input and uh, uh, you can meaningfully perform has always been very important to me. And obviously modular is a great way to do that. Uh, uh, I got into Surge eventually. I, I started only playing, I only started playing the Surge about a year ago, not even, not even a year ago, a little less than that. Um, I had, uh, you know, as, as we do with Eurorack, have been in this process of, I, I've like, I've definitely gone through the experience of selling and being like, Eurorack is not for me. And then I sold <laughs> everything. And then I rebought almost all of the exact same things over <laughs> the next year or so. Um, like I've gone through that process and then continually swapping things in and out. And I was just like, ah, you know, like I want to think about what I'm actually really responding to, um, especially the tools in the, in the case that I would use for multiple different purposes, right? Like I, I'm not super interested in, um, for myself, I'm not saying that this isn't, I understand why you would work in this way. It, it makes a ton of sense to me. But for me, like I'm not super interested in having a filter that I use in this one specific way where like it fills a role um, you know, like I use this for bass sound or something like that. Uh, uh, 
that I, I want my tools to be kind of as flexible as possible. And so I was kind of thinking about, okay, well, what is really working for me? Well, I use this maths and everything, and I use the harmonic oscillator to drive all these different audio rate modulation systems throughout a patch, um, uh, uh, particular kinds of filters that work really well with feedback, um, and so on and so forth. And I don't really patch in, in voices. Everything's kind of very connected. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of kind of branching paths this thing kind of like a break a signal off from its origin combine it with another path and then like it will go back to the first path or whatever if that makes sense if you're visualized like a a river delta almost the way that kind of like streams of water will intersect and, and reconnect yes uh, uh, i try to patch in, i try to patch in that way to kind of like make it very interactive and bring things apart and back together and, and, and perform them in a way that sometimes you can hear them coming apart and sometimes you can hear them coming back together and so looking at the toolkit and what I responded to really well, at this point I had two maths in my case. <laughs> and uh, um, You're not the only one. <laughs> I, I know, absolutely. But it was, you know, it was data for me to be like, okay, th that's working. And knowing that the way I patch is typically pretty dense um, in this way that has, has branching paths, Surge was kind of like, I was naturally very curious about Surge. It is highly optimized for this, for this kind of patching, I think. Um, <laughs> And so that was a hunch, and I ended up finding a uh, uh, somebody in you know in our community who who had a surge system uh, that he wasn't using, and he wanted somebody to be using it. So we arranged a trade, and um, it has been very rewarding. It's definitely it's hard to explain. I have this debate with uh, Dorian. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a debate, but he pushes me on it, and I think it's good about whether or not um, the surge. I mean, we talk about the surge specifically, but it's not really about that. Uh, but we talk about whether whether or not the surge actually creates a meaningful difference in the work that I'm, a, I'm able to create. Because it feels to me like I do, but I'm also aware of the fact that all the tools I have in that surge boat, I have in Eurorack, basically, as well. Um, so, like, okay, well, what is the difference? And I, I'm sure that you could hear the difference between a 15 and a 12-volt modular system, but I don't think that that's, like, what the actual difference is. Um, my, my hypothesis about it is that, and I think, you know, I, I suspect you would agree as somebody who's, who thinks a lot about modular synthesis and about, um, building your own, you know, instruments that, that you can really express yourself with. And we've talked before about how thoughtful you are about the sounds that you choose to put in. That has a lot to do with the tools that you're, you're using, the sounds that you put into your compositions. Absolutely. I think the interface is incredibly important. Like the act, the literal user experience of the instrument is incredibly important. Um, it creates, uh, it's, it's in some senses, like the interface of the instrument creates an ontology, like literally what is allowed to be music at this point in time, because it steers you towards something that steers you away from other things. Right. Right. I think about the piano is a really good example. Um, the piano is physically imbued with Western music theory, right? Like, right. and they actually co-evolved together. And so there are certain things that are music that you cannot do with a piano. The piano guides you towards doing certain things that you wouldn't do with a guitar, vice versa, right? So like, it kind of creates a world of possibility for you, even though you can like extend your technique and do all kinds of interesting things. And modular synthesis is of course extremely extensible. But the surge layout does work in a particular way that I have found encourages me to create really dense patches that um, allows me to shuffle audio around the system uh, in a much more flexible and immediate way. Um, I also really appreciate, I think this is 
I don't think this is trivial, and it, it's a. It feels like a very privileged benefit. Like if it, like talking about this feels like a very privileged place to be speaking from. But like the fact that it is, the panel is the panel, and you can't think about well, what would happen if I swap this filter out, is super useful. That is so distracting for me looking at my Eurorack case and being like, but what if I change that? Like I don't ever want to think about that when I'm actually making music. I only want to be thinking about the sound that's coming out of the speakers. So having everything laid out in a panel that is like a little bit monolithic too, the four U size is just like really satisfying to, to work with. Um, and everything's in a grid on the surge. It's just kind of like, it feels kind of brutal and dense and efficient. And uh, uh, it just kind of, it, it has clicked with me. So I was telling, I was telling you earlier that I, I have another surge panel that I designed with lattice warning in the UK and I'm excited to like get my hands on that, but I'm continuing to, this is like, I guess a new boat to throw my money into, but um, hopefully I will not keep expanding that system forever. I don't really plan on it. <laughs> now, something that I'm not familiar with is playing a surge. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with it, know of it. I've never played one, never, I've never, you know, gotten into it and had you know, had the time taken yeah. you know invested in it and, and made it and made a, a system tell me the uh the, the differences that and what you like about it in comparison to say Eurorack or or bukla mm -hmm. um bukla is a little easier i i've never played a bukla other than like the arturia Yes, the, uh, the, the, the easel. Five. Yeah, exactly. The yes, easel I plugin, it too. which is super cool. I've never even bought it. I just used the demo version. Oh, <laughs> it was great yeah. though. Like it was really satisfying really to use. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I think, you know, I've used a lot of Bukla inspired things in your rack. I've had a number of 258 or 259 clones. Like I've used a lot of them <laughs> over the years. I do not have one right now, which I feel mixed about. Um, but I, you know, uh, Kind of the main the main difference from Bukla is obviously that you know Bukla still has the audio cables and control voltages like they're different signal paths audio and, and control signal, um, which is a, I mean that's a design decision that stems from the Bukla one hundred and mm -hmm. continues to be true for everything that they release today, and it's very interesting like it provides a very it's a great design constraint for them to have to create new things with I think that it is part of what makes it's a constraint that is, I think, very creatively productive for for their instrument. Um, but for for what I do with all the kind of things running into each other, I really need everything to be on one standard, right? So the kind of like the Moog idea, or the Eurorack idea that everything uh, runs over one kind of cable and that you can run audio into any control voltage input and maybe it won't sound great, but you can at least do things with that. Yeah. So that, that to me is, is kind of in terms of design philosophy, the thing, one of the reasons that I wouldn't ever like put a down payment on a surge instead of a house. And instead I'm investing in surge. Um, the, the, uh, uh, there's a good documentary. I think it might be the wave shaper TV documentary that recently went up about surge himself. Mm. And surge was talking about how he arrived at his design philosophy for the surge. And it, it was basically, he, he had been working on instruments made out of crude radio parts, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So he had kind of like learned all these, do you know this story? Uh, not, not as much as you do, no. Um, I don't, don't want to <laughs> repeat anything that's boring, but he, he um, so he was working on these crude instruments and then uh, he saw a bukla and he, and he really, he thought it sounded really brutal and 
inspiring and uniquely electronic, right? Um, in the way that like, okay, this was a success state for the Buchla. The Buchla was designed to be something that was an inherently electronic instrument. It's not supposed to mimic anything else. Um, and he had heard Moogs uh, before and he just wasn't that inspired by them. So he, he heard a Buchla, but he thought, okay, well, what, what, what if I put everything, you know, the Buchla modules are so technically complex. There's a ton of stuff happening under the hood. And he thought, okay, yeah. what if I take all of those things, all of the sub operations that are happening behind the Buchla panel that are abstracted and actually put them on the surface of, of the instrument. Um, so, so rather than, um, I think a really great example is, uh, uh, rather than having an LFO, you know, there's no dedicated LFO in a search system. You would use function generators to create that. And the original search systems didn't even have like the, the DUSG or the, the universal slope generator that goes up. It's basically yeah. what maths is, is based on. Okay. The original search systems didn't actually have uh, slope generators that had both positive and negative slopes. They had positive slews and negative slews. And if you <laughs> wanted to have both, you needed to patch them together. <laughs> the whole premise of, of Surge is then like you, you are literally building your modules, right? You have a tool set to build whatever modules you need for a given patch. So everything's supposed to play multiple roles. Uh, 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 the kind of like, I think to my mind and to many people's minds, the, the module that like most exemplifies that is the step from smooth generator, which is, it can do, Doug Leonard has this video where it's like, here's 22 things that you can do with this module. Here's like 22 completely separate functions that depending on how you patch it, you have access mm -hmm. to using this one kind of like two inch section of your surge, which is oh. bananas, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, this brings me to how I feel surge is different. Than, so that's how surge is different than Buchla is that it does surface all of these things. And, and for me, that works really well. I like having kind of, I like experimenting with, um, having really precise control over every timbral component, or like every component of the patch that's timbrally affecting the sound. And so it gives me this huge vocabulary to do that with, right? Like even in a simple system, I have so many tools. Whereas in Eurorack, I end up kind of using the same tool for the same thing over and over again. And that can be great. That's a very interesting limitation, but it has been rewarding in Surge to be able to explore this other this other way of doing it. Um, but, but in... Um, uh, uh, I think one of the differences, one of the reasons I wanted to make the jump, knowing that it was an investment, was that uh, the search system is constrained, right? Like increasing loudest warning, this person, this uh, person in the UK, Charlie, who I'm, who's going to build this panel, he builds custom panels for people, um, search panels. He, he also kind of like developed a standardized format for you format for modules that would be uh, compatible with uh, search. So, for example, you can get a, a like a rings in search format now, in the loudest warning format. So that does exist, and that's very cool. I'm not yeah. super interested in that. So, like, you, you yeah. can get those, and, and like you can expand your search in this way. And there's people who are developing interesting for you modules, which is awesome. But I really love the idea of a constrained library of tools. You know, <laughs> where like listen. In unless you're buying like one of these extremely expensive STS surges, really, like you have access to two filters plus the resident equalizer, like, and that's what you have. Um, everybody has access to those things. There isn't an infinite variety of filters you can choose from. Um, there isn't an infinite variety of BCAs. The BCAs sound the way that they do. Um, so I'm not gonna. I'm not ever gonna think twice about. Well, what if I had 
a different mixer? What if its clipping properties were different? Would that be interesting? And I will absolutely think about that. And I don't really want to in terms of my music creation process. I love thinking about that as like a, an intellectual exercise. But in terms of being productive, I, I, I really enjoy the constraint. So the constraint of both locking the panel in and being like, okay, this is done. But also the constraint of here's these like really brutal sounding kind of primitive electronic components that you're patching with um, is... Uh, uh, It just really works for me, and I, I don't I don't know if it's something that I would recommend to everybody. Like, I, it, not to say that it's better or worse. I just I know that it works for me. That's all. It's, it just fits in the style that you like, and what it, from what I understand of what you really appreciate about Surge is that it's there is the limitations mm. of what's available. Is that sure you can do similar things if you're you know compared to Eurorack, but you don't have the same variety. Of, of tools that you would have in mm -hmm. there. So say, like, like you said, the LFO, there's not multiples, there's yeah. one. Right. And that's about, and that's what anyone in, in, that, in that system format is gonna be using. Right. And it's up to you on how you're actually gonna design your sound through these particular modules of that setup. Yeah, I think, I think that's well said. I, you know, I think that that problem would be solved in Eurorack if I had more self-discipline. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I haven't really bought, I haven't bought any, any Eurorack. I've only sold Eurorack since I bought the search, which is yeah. great. Like, I don't really want, I don't have space in my life. We live in San Francisco. Like, I cannot yeah. keep accumulating music here. And I don't, you know, I don't, you know, it's also not the most yeah, fiscally all, responsible thing to do. All our, all our studio spaces are closets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, I, like, I imagine that, like, realistically, you could make this, I think that you could end up with the same sounds. I mean, even on most of the search tools, like, most of the kind of, like, greatest hits of Surge are available in Eurorack now. Um, which is great. So you could totally do it. It's not, it's not that you couldn't do that. It's just, I can't do that because I lack the self-control necessary <laughs> to build an, a Eurorack instrument that way. It also creates a unique sound for yourself because you're using a system that has, you know, X amount and no, and no, and no real flexibility when yeah. it comes to the variety, but it gives you the, uh, a space where you've already got a plan in your head of what you can do, what you want to do mm -hmm. with these path, you know, with what path you're going to create, yeah. and having the intuition of knowing what's what module does what, you're able to continually, you know, create that patch and and as you said, have the sounds filter back in from where they started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. That sounds exactly right. <laughs> Much more concise. Thank you. <laughs> oh no problem. Um, it's really fascinating stuff. I'm, you know, and this is, and I love how you've been able to break down uh, Surge more for me because it helps me understand about it because I have yet to dive into it physically myself. But it's again one of those you know wonderful uh, pieces of synthesizer history that I still have yet to really explore myself. You know, same thing with with booklets. Like, I love you know I love the sounds of booklets. There's something particular about about booklet about any company that there's a particular sound for every company and I want a little piece of it somewhere mm -hmm. like you know I bought a I bought a, I bought a Moog Minotaur just because I got it for a good price mm -hmm. it's a good it's a good you know mono synth that does that and now I have that that ladder filter in there mm -hmm. you know that's very popular for Moog for sure which is great but and you know I'm now forever you know changing things up and, and trying new things mostly in Eurorack mm -hmm. of course 
and just because it's just just more affordable and it's had, and it's just been a bit easier to deal with. Yeah. Here and there. Now that I've actually now that I actually understand what I'm doing. For sure. Uh, like uh, there's something like one of the really appealing things about your rack, but I also think working with music electronics generally is like there is a really compelling um, element of collection. It's, it's a, there is. Yeah, yeah it, it's like it's a it's an appealing thing to collect because it inspires and uh, you know you can use them to access different kinds of experimentation, which is which is really cool. Um, where for you is the line between like collection and instrument building? So for me, it's it's not so much about collection, although I have a lot. Mm -hmm. um, in, in in between Yoraks and pedals, I've had a lot of stuff, but I've I've been buying stuff for for years, Mo mostly you know pedals and 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 just standard synthesizers. So I've got a decent collection at home, but my but the, my main focus has been Eurorack a lot over the past two years, so that's where I've been you know putting my main focus and learning about it. And something that I take away from it is rather not so much. How many modules I have, but mm -hmm. what I can do with what I have, because I don't want to continually buy more and more modules and make my system huge. Sure, it would be fun to have a wall, you know, the size of a library wall full of modules, but that's just not in the you know not in the cards right now. Mm -hmm. So doing a smaller set and also living in San Francisco, something that I wanted to do, that I've set out for, and I've mostly been able to do was set up between either 104 HP or or 84 HP skiff, mm -hmm. and have everything I want to use in that in that mm -hmm. one setup, so that I can take it on the bus and go play a show. Mm -hmm. That way, I don't have to worry about carrying a few suitcases worth of things. So it's easier to get around that way, and I and I'm and I'm able to constrain myself to the amount of modules I buy. And this way, I tell I can practice on what I have, and decide on where that sounds going. And, and then I can decide on how I'm going to tweak it, how mm -hmm. I'm going to rechange that patch. So it's, it's, it's a good tool to limit yourself because that gives you the opportunity to really understand the modules that you have and the limitations that they are and how much you can push them. Yeah. How, how often do you change the modules in your performance case? Not a lot. Yeah. Um, I just changed up this 84 uh, HP case just uh, earlier this week. So this is actually designed more around the uh, the twin cushion uh, module I just got from Ramona, which is brand new. I've only played with it once, but before that I had all kinds of crazy things in there. I really only have there's really only four modules in there now, mm -hmm. just because Renee is huge, mm -hmm. and then twin cushion is almost not quite as huge, but it's a it's a big one. Mm -hmm. You know they take up wait they, I think there's fifty percent of that case is just those two modules. Yeah. They're just huge. We're, so I take it that you do not fall on the uh, save all the HP you can. You don't fall into the save all the HP you can camp. No. Yeah. No, I'm not worried about it. Yeah, me neither. No, it's like I if I need more HP, I'll I'll get a new case. But I've got two cases that I, that I switch around with. I really only want to take one out of the studio. Mm -hmm. And so far, I've been able to do that. Like last time I played Resonant Frequencies, I brought this guy out, and I was able to do a set for I think I played for 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I had a ball doing it. Right. It was well, fun. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting. I would imagine that the simplicity makes it, in many ways, I found the more complicated my setup is, if I'm not super rehearsed, the worse the show is going to go. Like, simpler, 
a simpler number of points of interaction, obviously, is going to guide you towards a uh, probably a more coherent performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like. I think it's one of these things with with modular or music gear in general, where well, I, specifically the HP question with modular. I get it. Like, if you're writing music that is uh, where part of the premise or kind of the artistic intent is to make use of a large number of voices, saving HP is, is actually a really important part of the design of your instrument. I, I get that for sure. Sure. Um, so I don't mean to... It's just an interesting case study of, of there is no inherently better... Um, there's no like inherently superior uh, way to think about laying out your instrument. So I, I happen to identify with you. Like, get the tools that you that really speak to you. Mm-hmm. That when you touch them, you are able to do all kinds of different things, even things that you weren't expecting that are pleasing to you. And then learn to play them by constraining yourself to interacting with them. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. It's it's uh, yeah, it's really fun that way. Something that really, um, I'm not sure. If, um, I don't know if you can do this with Surge. I guess it depends on on the uh, the inputs, but something that I I really enjoy using are the Landscape FM All Flesh, which are basically just oh yeah you know what I'm talking about I do yeah they're they're fantastic it's basically you're using your body as, as a patch cable mm-hmm. and the fa- if you set it up right with the right you know um, module you can you can make it a percussion right and just at at the touch of a uh, mm-hmm. your finger basically and you can send different signals. Different places all at the same time mm-hmm. if they're close enough in proximity to your fingers, of course, if you're stretching long enough. And it's been a really interesting tool to play around with and actually perform with. Yeah, because it actually gives you a little bit more versatility. It was similar to a keyboard, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly. Yeah. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. Based on this, I, did, I saw I saw you post a video uh, of of this case. Yeah. That this performance case that you have that is also sitting in front of me right now, yes. I'm gesturing towards it. But um, and you had that you had the, uh, the what, what are they called? All flesh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, patched in. Um, I thought that was super interesting because you had a lot of them too, which That's indicates that you are obviously making really great use of them. Um, but my question is: so you're turning you are turning the interface of, of the modular synthesizer into something that is really a, a, a more playable. Yeah, has a has a tactile interface, mm-hmm. uh, which um, I think is an interesting topic in in electronic music, in electronic instrument design. Is uh, like is instrumentalism important? You know, or yeah. what is the value of instrumentalism? So you have you're developing a physical technique mm-hmm. in order to interact with your synthesizer, um, and and that physical technique is. Uh, uh, we talk about like the ontology of a musical instrument, like right? that you have the piano, you have the keys, and specific frequency ranges, and all these kinds of things, right? Your version of that is okay. Well, you have these pads, and they're going to respond to touch in a particular way, right? So right. you are learning how they react to you. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you have Renee. Renee has certain optimizations and constraints. Um, uh, uh, to you, like, are are is performing with an in, like an electronic instrument that is very physically responsive is that inherently more rewarding are you more excited when you see other people playing or do you care you know do you want somebody else to be doing something that's very physically performative or if you see somebody kind of work a patch that's much more programmatically generated is that equally exciting to you 
it's more personal for me. Yeah. That to be able to use the these you know the the, the flesh plates to create to create to uh, interact with the system more in a in a more theatrical way mm-hmm. I think is something that I've I've wanted to incorporate into you know a live show and I actually have more of a connection to what I'm doing mm-hmm. you know with the modules by by playing them with my with with my fingers yeah. compared to you know patching everything and it all being you know generative uh-huh. which is fine you know there's plenty of people who are doing that you know there's plenty of people who are still you know using laptops and mm-hmm. you know playing set like that that's fine that's what they want to do you know and but that's not for everybody mm-hmm. there's all kinds of varieties of how to play mm-hmm. you know some people don't want to use a, a computer interface at all some people just want to have it all just you know patch cables that's fine mm-hmm. you know as long as that works for that artist that's great me it's I like I, I like a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. So currently, I don't have you know any type of computer set up with it really at all. Just everything that's in the case. But it just gives me a, something that's a bit more physical that gets me more into the music of what I'm doing. And it is a part of theatrics at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is that you can actually you know get into it as if you're playing a keyboard and you can you know put yourself into the motions of the music a mm-hmm. bit more that way. And I think that's something that's very expressive mm-hmm. for an audience. For sure. For sure. I, I think I, I think I completely agree with you. The, like, the, you know, I think that this is this is a theme of our conversation. Right? The, we don't need to. It it's <laughs> it makes me really tired when people decide to talk about one approach being better than the other one. Like that's not what we need to be doing. No. Um, and in fact, I, I think that uh, uh, when people are talking about that, what I kind of hear is wanting to center the conversation about making music on gear rather than on actual composition which is a real it's a real <laughs> bugaboo for me like uh, uh the gear is really important you know we're, we've been talking about gear obviously like i yeah. think it matters um not that i not that i'm saying that i'm right uh but i i do think it matters uh, uh, so it's not that i'm questioning that premise but like if if what you're hung up on is you didn't build your instrument or you're not performing in the right way you're thinking not about the actual music you're thinking about you're like doing some weird gear gatekeeping that isn't useful or conducive to um, uh, uh, creating a better music scene, uh, uh, working together with the people around you to kind of uh, uh, all collaborate to make each other's music better, right? Like, what are we doing if we're not yeah. doing that? Let's focus on those things. The gear is important; it's a part of it. But yeah. if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about how your performance went. Let's talk about how the music actually sounded first and work backwards to whether or not what you did with the gear was effective. You know, but start with the result. Something that I think you both, you and I both agree upon is the philosophy that it goes behind creating music, mm-hmm. that goes behind every artist that is using some type of synthesizer or any gear of any sort, is that how is you, how, what's your approach to mm-hmm. this? And that's something that has, that I've seen I'll, that with everybody within our electronic music scene here in the Bay Area that we play with at Resident Frequencies and mm-hmm. Resident and, and at Peaked as well and which has been a great audience because everyone's coming about and when I look around the audience people are listening with their ears mm-hmm. they're, they're closing their eyes and listening to what's happening they're not worried about what the performer's doing exactly mm-hmm. it's there because they're interested about what this music yeah. is and again we're it's all about our approach. Mm-hmm. 
It's not about, it's sure, the gear is definitely a huge part of it, but it's also about how we internalize that music and how we internalize our, our gear and what we want to get out of it. Because mm-hmm. every artist has an expression of what they're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has a focus mm-hmm. on that. Some, some artists do. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's a huge part of, of, our, of our community and how it grows. Mm-hmm. I, I had a really interesting conversation with, um, uh, with a mutual acquaintance of ours. Uh, uh, who is, I'm not saying his name because I don't know if he uses his real name on music releases that he does. Okay. <laughs> um, but he he's really interested in, um, his primary interest in electronic music actually is the interface itself. So he does a lot of DIY stuff. Uh, uh, he really likes experimenting with uh, new kinds of control modules that are coming out and thinking about workflow in different ways. Um, and that is the thing that is kind of most stimulating for him about the experience of working with the modular synthesizer. It's related to what he does at work. He's naturally gravitated towards those kinds of thinking in his life. And so it would make sense that it extends to the way he's approaching his music. And it's not that the music itself isn't a priority, but when he's thinking about what his next project is going to be, it's going to be exploring a new way of making music and then kind of like applying that to familiar sounds. The evolution is in the workflow. It's not necessarily uh, uh, always. The goal isn't to create uh, uh, evolution in the music. Music does evolve, but it's kind of in response to the workflow. If that makes sense, and that that totally makes sense. But uh, I think that's it, it. This is maybe <laughs> slicing a hair. We'll see. I think that this is different than the kind of failure mode that we're describing, of. Um, not having an artistic perspective that's powered by gear. He does have an artistic perspective that's powered by gear. His just his artistic perspective is about gear. <laughs> if that makes sense, which is a little bit it's like a little bit of an ouroboros, but um it, that to me is still different from um uh, uh I have this piece of gear and I use it in the way that kind of is extremely characteristic of that gear and I'm not really thinking about how to bring it together in a way that uh, uh, creates a coherent artistic vision. Um, not to say that that's not fun to do sometimes, like it totally is fun to do, uh, uh, <laughs> but the community that I want to be in is, is one that is able to do that, but then also uh, when we get together to talk about our music, we're talking about uh, uh, the differences and the similarities in, in like, compositional terms in its own right and being enthusiastic about it, to your point. There's a years ago there was this bumper sticker that that came out and it, it still floats around here and there and it says drum machines have no soul <laughs> and I, I i don't think it's stayed very popular yeah because to my to me it's like well you're putting your soul into that drum machine when you program it uh-huh. and 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 into any yeah. anything that you're playing, you're putting your soul into those modules, yeah. putting your soul into that guitar, mm-hmm. whether you know or that piano. Yeah. All these things are expressive tools, mm-hmm. and I I, you know, I can understand the the perspective of someone who's you know who would use that bumper sticker because they're probably a drummer, mm-hmm. and and they're seeing it as as you know taking away the human aspect mm-hmm. of what they do, which. I understand, but at the same time, it's it's a different perspective of how you create music. It's a tool, and you and you choose how you use that tool. And most bands are will have a drummer if they have you know 
guitars and basses and things like that, even a synthesizer, sure. Yeah. But and it also but it, it creates a sound. Yeah. You know, look at bands like Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. That's a band that doesn't use a live drummer usually, mm-hmm. or at least on the recordings. Yeah. That's you know, it's all you know, a drum machine mm-hmm. like that. Beastie Boys. Yeah. Right on. Right. You know, again. For sure. I have, I have a slightly different perspective on this. Yeah. I agree with you that that is, like, that is a layer of, of, for sure, what is happening. But I also think that anytime, I mean, this isn't ex- ex- specifically about music. I think anytime that people are using, uh, like, rejecting technology in particular, but, like, anytime somebody is rejecting something cultural, really what they're doing is just trying to, like, signal inness with some other group, right? And, right, create community by deciding who isn't in the community yes and so i think it's all about social capital which is a real bummer that like musicians do end up accumulating social capital by doing this thing that you're describing which is just like deciding to write off Mm -hmm. um entire uh technology i mean an entire technology but also just i mean it's just such a bummer as an as an artist to to write off somebody else's art Mm -hmm. kind of not super critically i think that you're not doing yourself a service Right. If you if you have a practice of whenever you hear something, even if you don't relate to it, um, trying to figure out what works about it or what you like about it or what you could like about it, it's you will you will be a better musician <laughs> if you take that approach rather than disregarding things because uh, uh, they are not um, kind of like like the status quo, um, or or they don't kind of you don't see them as helping your status right like which is you know it's yeah so yeah i don't know i I'm, i feel very fortunate that in the bay area that doesn't seem to be what the conversation is around electronic music and i think that that i mean that uh dates back to the conversation about surge and bukla right like surge and bukla got along okay it sounds like i don't think either of them are we're like the most are where one of them is alive the most social dudes but um, yeah. they, they, I don't know if they really necessarily saw themselves as in competition. I'm not sure. I'm going to retract this statement. But the point <laughs> is that that coexisted. There was a general, uh, uh, the kind of like ideas around Surge. The like Surge community still is like really accepting. And it's because like Surge, there isn't, to my mind, maybe, maybe there are people who disagree with me, but I don't think that there is a Surge music in the way that I would say that there is like a Bukla music. I agree. Or there's like actually, a, I, there's I something that, that sounds characteristically Bukla or Moog. Yeah, no, I, I see that actually. I've yeah. seen that in the community uh, quite a bit. That mm-hmm. there, especially with Bukla, like mm-hmm. with the music easel. Yeah. There's a particular group oh, that you know get together and and that's a thing. And that's like, super cool. I think it's great. Um, you know, there's people that actually design cards. Yeah. So that you can, yeah. you know, for, program right? Program. It's super cool. It's, it's, great. it's and, and like there is a lot to having a community based around an instrument. That's that's really lovely. And, and that that is what is happening with Surge. It's not that that's not what's happening with Surge. But the people who are who are involved in the Bay Area electronic music community, who you know, I think like Doug Litter, for example, mm-hmm. who is fantastic and super welcoming and shares his knowledge, and he is somebody who absolutely will figure out what works about what you're doing. Like he has a great ear and a great uh, mind for it, and and he he's. Uh, uh, like a kind of a, a good mentor but then that there's all kinds of people who've been doing this for and that we know in the bay area for a really long time and they all kind of share that characteristic and it, it's True. just tremendous like i feel very fortunate because i've been in scenes in other cities where it's not that they were bad but they weren't as um yeah. th- curious or like just inherently interested in what other people were doing not that that always happens here but i think it happens here a larger amount of the time than, than in some other scenes that I've operated in. 
I, in my experience over the past couple of years, I really have seen a big uh, uh, welcoming to to electronic music. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm I'm in Seattle or Portland or or somewhere else, but of course in the Bay Area, everybody is is very accepting. And I had this great conversation with Ellison Wolf, who does Waveform Magazine, when I when I went to Seattle uh, last month, and he even mentioned he said. Have you noticed that there's no big egos with anybody? Everybody's just really curious about what else we're all doing, about the technology, and we're all open to help each other out. Yeah, that's awesome. It's one of the most well. It's one of the most wonderful things I've really appreciated about yeah. a, you know about this whole electronic music community. I, I do have a, a hypothesis, but one thing okay. that that leads to that culture, obviously. Really, what makes it work is that it has attracted people who want to continue propagating that culture. Uh, I think that we need to we need to prioritize bringing more kinds of people <laughs> into into those discussions that are very, you know, we know that we are an accepting group, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes that's not enough to to increase the diversity of of thought and identity. So I think it's something that we all need to focus on. Um, but I think one of the things that binds us together, despite the fact that, uh, or the, the, one of the reasons that we do tend to be uh, pretty open-minded with each other and supportive. Is that nobody's doing the same thing? There's no genre like this. Isn't this isn't punk rock? You know where yeah. where you could go see uh, like a really scene-driven show and see four bands that are doing really similar things, and that's awesome, right? Like there is a lot to that. But the the fact that we are not like that, everybody is doing something that like has a Oftentimes, you go to see a show like Resonant Frequencies, you will see 10 different artists who had 10 extremely different artistic intents. And they're yes. using tools that are really only superficially similar, right? Like modular yes. synthesizers, it's like we all love and appreciate them, but when you actually look at the way that in somebody's instrument works versus somebody else's instrument, they're extremely different. Yes. So there's all of these differences, and it's only these superficial things that's kind of like interested in the gear, ostensibly, that brings us together. But because we all, like we human beings, we thrive on a social element, right? And, yes. and we want to listen to music, we want to have our music heard. We are in a scenario where we are highly incentivized to actually listen to each other and 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 be engaged with music that maybe you wouldn't hit play on otherwise. Um, I do, I think one of the things that I really, I, I try to make sure that I, I do, and I, I hope that we continue to kind of build a culture of this, is anytime that somebody that I know personally has released something, I try to listen to it at least five or six times. Even if it's not something that I'm going to like have in my back pocket to jam out to personally later, I just want to hear it. I want to offer the support of having really heard it and thought about it mm-hmm. um, because it's a real shame. There's a lot of very cool music that's being made and I feel like it's sent off into the ether and the internet and nobody ever listens to it. That's a big dilemma I'm seeing. And uh, it's... I, and, and I think that's something that we're slowly trying to figure out together. Like some people, like Nathan Moody, he's already got he's already very well established, and when he puts something out, it's well received because he's he's Nathan Moody. Everyone know, and which is great, but there's but we don't always all have you know that background. So there's a, some of us who are putting the albums out, mm-hmm. and yeah, I got I got you know a case at home of cassette case of cassette right. tapes I put out earlier this year. I've sold a few, not much, right. but you know I'm doing a different thing as well. You know maybe it's not as 
well received audibly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But again, it's something that, as you said, it's, you know, you put it out there on the internet and it's to the ether. Mm-hmm. It just, no one's going to hear it if you're not promoting it, if you're not out there doing shows to promote it, things like that, which is the old school way, which still works. For sure. You know, and, and speaking of albums, I was listening to um, uh, Beautitudes, mm-hmm. your album, and I was really digging uh, Vancouver number one. Mm-hmm. That was really, that was a nice granular piece. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> That's very kind to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, 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 I, I mean, I can I can talk a little bit about that, but I'm, I'm also I think it I think a lot about you know I, I have a job that is not music. I don't really aspire to make music my job at any point in time. You know, I uh, uh, if someone were to like show up and be like, we will give you millions of dollars or we will just pay you a living wage to make music for the rest of your life. I'd be like, great, cool. Um, but I'm not going to go try to make that happen. I don't know very many people who are actually doing that, who love their work. Um, and I don't think that I have the emotional resilience to do that job, like to right. do the job of being a musician. So it's not a goal that I have. And that means that um, my goals as a musician are to make music that I find that I find rewarding to listen to and to make that is like intellectually stimulating, that is emotionally stimulating, that I, I really like the practice of holding myself to a really high compositional standard and trying to get better every time I pass the synthesizer and when I record things, trying to kind of like get the version of it that is the best possible thing it could be and to get better as a composer. Like I, that is really important to me. Um, and then when I share it out, I don't need everybody to listen to it. Like I, I, I'm never gonna, I don't want to spend the time on marketing that would be required to get lots of people to listen to it and, and, and to hear me. Um, and I don't really care. Like, I'm like, I'm fine with that. I need somebody to hear it. Like, I, I, it's not that I don't want people to listen to it. I find it very rewarding when people listen to it and enjoy it. But I also know that there's like, you know, I have maybe 20 people in the world that I will send this out to and they will actually listen to it a few times. And that's cool. That like works for me as long as they listen to it and they give me honest feedback about it. That feels pretty good. Um, I'm not saying that that's, this is obviously not a good way to become a professional musician. I'm not trying to, but I think a lot about, you know, uh, I guess I get insecure about like my own validity as an artist. If I'm not trying to get more people to listen to it, like maybe I'm a little in my own head, <laughs> but like, is it just a defense mechanism against, uh, uh, against people not receiving it? Well, is that one of the reasons why I'm not out there pushing it? Well, I mean, it is true that I don't want to live the lifestyle that people who are working professionally in music have to live or that I've seen them live. I'm sure there's ways that you could uh, do it on your own terms. So yeah, I, I think about that a lot. I don't think that there's an answer there, but I, I, I do think about it constantly. So Beatitudes um, was uh, uh, something I, I didn't, I wasn't really planning on making a record and I realized that I had enough tracks to, to turn it into a record. So I kind of like took all these recordings from a period of about 18 months and, um, where I hadn't really been artistically very focused, but I had been developing, like I had been working really hard on trying to figure out um, uh, uh, how to get more out of the synthesizer and how to create real compositions and not just interesting sounds. Because I had, my first couple of years working with the modular were really just like making cool sounds, right? And like it was, it was very enjoyable, but I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to kind of like, you know, take the next step. Um, and it had been a while since like the, the, previous release that I had made was um, was piano music. Uh, and so I hadn't like written anything in a while. I hadn't like put an energy into actual composition really since a, a few years prior. And uh, 
I, so I didn't do it. I didn't like make that record with a ton of intention. Um, and, and a lot of that record, uh, one of the reasons it sounds very granular is that I used the modular as a, as a sound source, but I didn't really do the composition in the modular. Um, so a lot of it isn't very performed. Make a sound, maybe tweak it a little bit, and then I would go back in and kind of use them as like several minute long samples mm -hmm. and do a lot of repitching or layering things at different pitches. Uh, destruct like similar to the things I had been doing years prior with destructive audio processing. Um, uh, uh, and at the time, I I was using the demo version of the um, of Ableton Live Suite because I didn't want to pay for it. And so you can't save anything. <laughs> so what I would do is I would uh, uh, record some sounds in, and then I would like do some processing to it, and then I would uh, internally route it in Ableton because you can't bounce either. You, I would internally <laughs> route it in Ableton uh, through a bus back onto an audio track yeah. <laughs> and record, like basically bounce it down that way. Sure. And then the next day when I went to work on it, I would open up a new session and bring that track in. So I would just be working from whatever stereo stem I had ended with the day before and so I would kind of like work in layers um, uh, because I couldn't save and it was actually a fantastic constraint um, but it, and it created um, on, on like the, the, the pieces that are a little bit more compositionally dense it did create a real sound and that, that ended up being the thing that characterized it. I realized I had made all this music in this way without really having tried to mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and that, that, that is kind of what, how that record came about that's great <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, telling me a little bit more of, about about that album. I was really curious to hear more about it, and um, and I noticed that you had said you you've stated on on your Bandcamp that you said don't pay me, donate ten dollars to an organization or uh -huh. something like that, and and that's uh, that's a nice thing to do. Uh, that's for a couple of reasons. There's one, I, I'm genuinely not trying to make money from my music. I don't have to. I, fortunate to have a job that means that I don't really have to worry about I can like have this hobby um, and I feel very fortunate that I don't have to monetize it that's great um, it kind of like makes me less stressed out about it very selfishly uh, but then two I'm, I'm an immigrant so I'm from Canada and I saw that I'm on a work visa <laughs> so I can't make money uh, for my music and I just like beyond you know I I do genuinely feel like I it People have told me that they've done this. The, the, I, I recommend specifically uh, donating to uh, uh, charities that benefit uh, uh, First Peoples and uh, uh, especially queer and, and queer people, uh, trans people and, and women in, in, in First People and Indigenous communities because, I don't know, that, that's just like, well, I, I would lo I love hearing when people are like, I liked your music and so I did this thing. I, I contributed to this cause that I normally wouldn't have contributed to. Well, you're obviously passionate about really these good. things. Um, so it, it, it feels that is much more meaningful to me than having received like $10 for the record. Uh, uh, so I do it for both reasons, uh, but also like genuinely, if for whatever reason I'm ever renewing my work visa or something and the customs agent asks me, well, you have this music online, I can say, no, look, like literally you can't pay me. I told them not to. <laughs> like I don't have a bank account connected to Bandcamp. I do not receive, like people sometimes do like, send a dollar or something and I just don't collect it. I don't know where it goes. <laughs> I don't want to find out. Like, I just don't want any of the complications. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is the same reason I don't have my music on Spotify. Cause I just, yeah. I would have to do it through Canada and I don't want to deal with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's something that I have yet to even try to get on is Spotify. I haven't even tried at all. Yeah. Like it's something that, um, what's it? Um, 
uh, Frank Martin keeps on telling me, mm-hmm. you know, put my music on there, put my podcast on there. Yeah. It's like, I haven't gotten around to it. It's like, yeah. eh, don't want to. At the same time, I probably should. It's a weird gate, gatekeepery system. Like, it, it is, I listen to music on Spotify, like, all day. Like, I, I don't even really feel mixed about it. <laughs> I think it's mm-hmm. fine. But, but the way that, I understand why, like, you have to basically pay somebody to get your music on Spotify. Spotify approves the people who can put music on its platform. And if you're Spotify, that makes sense. But mm-hmm. um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially, like, yeah, do you want a time... Do, you, you also, you know, you have your job that you have to go do during the day. You only have so much energy. You know, you have a relationship that you maintain. You have a social life. Yeah. Do you want to spend your time dedicated to music trying to, like, work with some kind of, like, shitty automated program that's trying to put your music on Spotify and probably not doing a great job? And definitely the people who work at that company don't care about you or your music. <laughs> like, yeah, it's not that... I don't want to spend my time and energy on that. It's really know? that headache. Yeah. And I, get, I, don't, I don't think it's that hard. Like, I'm being way overly dramatic about it, but, mm-hmm. but this is, I guess, one of the ways that I justify it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a, you know, a fun enough time you know, figuring out Bandcamp, the difference between the fan and the artist profiles yeah and then it's like okay now if i had figured it out it took it took a minute yeah that was that was kind of hard but that's not too bad i got it up i figured it out and then actually something that i learned from uh caleb duarte who who is an audio terrorist Mm -hmm. he actually told me uh something that i didn't didn't know about he said that you can actually that he does all the time is that you can upload things you know tracks to Bandcamp. And leave it open to a, you know upload more or mm-hmm. take them down. And right. You don't have to publish it right away. Yeah, and that's something that I that I've now been using just for personal use. Oh, cool! Which has been really great. Kind of like accumulate your work there, exactly. And then put when it it's together, ready for release, put it together, listen to it in unison, decide if it's right. If not, take a track or two down or something like that. Rearrange things. Mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty flexible platform. Mm-hmm. I really like Bandcamp. I just wish that their app was like a little bit easier to use. And like I like, I get why. Like they they are trying to guide people towards actually buying the the music, which Spotify is not doing. And so like good no. job Bandcamp, but it does make it slightly more inconvenient to listen to. <laughs> I, I actually use Bandcamp more than anything else. Is that right? Oh yeah. That's, um, I mean yeah. We should all take a page from your book. I think. <laughs> like I like Bandcamp the most out of like all the music apps out mm-hmm. there. I'm forever exploring, listening to things I've ne- I would never hear of, mm-hmm. and that's something that's really great. And can compared to say like iTunes, I use it just because it's like the main thing on my phone to listen to to listen to music. But I'm not a fan of how it's designed. Mm-hmm. Just have never liked it. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the things, especially on a, on a computer, it just takes up so much memory, mm-hmm. and it's just ridiculous. But, um, Bandcamp's blog is really good. Yeah, I think like they do a they do a great job digging into sometimes like hyper local scenes and and pulling up ten records from of this extremely specific subgenre from some specific region, <laughs> and it's all really cool. Like you know, it, uh, uh, even if it doesn't, even if you don't end up walking away with a record that you're going to listen to over and over again, they do a good job writing about these people that are not getting written about otherwise. That's great. It's awesome. Like they're, and it's, they post them on Twitter and they don't get enough engagement, which really, it makes me sad because it is a very cool kind of music journalism that they're doing. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. I'll, I gotta look into that. Thank you. Well, we've talked for about an hour. 
I think uh, we're pretty good. Cool. Thank you so much. This was fun. Yeah, this is.